0: okay welcome everyone to drisha's full program and the second of our three-part series on caring for others the torah and ourselves jewish perspectives on the ethics of care in this session we'll compare two accounts of ethical and halakhic or obligation from emmanuel levinas and mara benjamin we'll explore how the ethics of care can help us enrich our sense of what obligation means in both our own daily lives as well in, in, as in Jewish text. Uh, I'm here today with Sarah Zager. And Sarah, I'll turn this uh, to you.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited to be learning with you all for a second session and welcome if there's anybody who's just joining us for part two. Um, so as as Evie said, our, our job for today is to sort of compare two models of Obligation, both ethical obligation, and kind of by the end, we'll we'll sort of pivot back around to thinking more about prolific obligation. Um, And ethics of care will sort of be in the background of our our reframing of what what obligation is. Um, Last week, we sort of set up the ethics of care as a critique of conventional philosophical approaches to thinking about what ethics is or what ethics is about. We'll see also that there's a kind of Jewish ethics of care that's kind of bubbled up in the past little few years. um, And that Jewish ethics, Jewish version of an ethics of care is targeted often at a sort of particular model of thinking about ethics in Jewish philosophy. So what I want to do today is introduce you to that model and then introduce you to the care ethical critique of it. And then if we have time, we'll consider one potential like response that sort of goes the other way, of um, responding against against the ethicist. So that's we're just going to kind of trace this arc throughout, and and um, hopefully it will actually help us reframe some texts that we saw last week, and will sort of get us ready to look at some texts that we're going to see next week. So without further ado, um, I want to spend just a couple minutes introducing you to my friend Emmanuel Levinas before we uh, spend some time thinking about his philosophy. So Levinas was a naturalized French citizen um, who, in 1940, was captured by German troops while working as a translator. He then spent the rest of the war in a prisoner of war camp, and that's actually where his philosophical approach and actually his his sense of what ethics is came from um, in his prison notebooks. That's sort of where he gives his first ethical view. Um, and after the war, Levinas works in a kind of series of strange jobs, some in academia, some sort of academic adjacent, more in the Jewish community. And he also develops a stronger interest in Jewish texts. He studies under this like kind of uh, enigmatic figure named Monsieur Soshani, who, um, often didn't reveal his his real name or his real identity. Scholars have done some work to dig it out, but nobody really knew who he was. Um, he taught Talmud to the likes of Elie Wiesel and all kinds of other people. He would sort of show up at a moment's notice, demand to teach, and then slink away in the night. He was a really odd guy. So Levinas is a kind of interesting figure in that he's both deeply steeped in a sort of European philosophical tradition, and at the same time, because of both his experience in the war and his own like sense of Jewishness feels the need to critique that model. So in order to see that, I'm going to share screen. And we're going to see um, a delightful little picture, which I have for you. Everybody see the screen? OK, good. So um, I often draw this picture on the board when I'm teaching, but the likes of Zoom have forced me to translate it into the wonders of clip art. So I get excited. So Levinas is part of a philosophical tradition called phenomenology. We're not going to spend too much time like worrying about what that is for the moment, but um, it's worth and then it's worth noting that Levinas is both kind of an inheritor of that tradition and a critic of that tradition. So, in order to see how that works, I want you to look at this little picture, which gives you a sense of what's the philosophical issue at hand. So. The classical phenomenologists are interested in a very old-school philosophical question that goes all the way back, at least to Descartes, but even back further, which is a very simple question which is hard to demonstrate on Zoom because everything is virtual and weird, but the question is, I have this pen here. How do I know that the pen is real? Right? Or in the case of our little person, how do I know? I'm looking at this tree. How do I know the tree is really there? This is like an old-school classic philosophical question. So. For a long time, people have battled around different answers, but the phenomenologists say like, you know what? Forget already about this craziness about the tree. Don't worry about it. All you need to know is that you're having an idea of a tree. You're having some like philosophical, you have some um, perception of the tree. Whether the tree is really there is kind of not that important. What we really know is that the tree is leaving some impression on you. You have some perception of the tree. So the idea that Husserl and all these other phenomenologists who Levinas is really steeped in want to give us is that actually forget about the actual tree that's there just focus on the sense that the one thing i know for certain is that i perceive that there's a tree whether the tree is really there not an important thing So Levinas takes this model and he basically is like you know This is, in some sense, very useful. But it's focused on the wrong things. It's got the wrong question, the wrong, right? The the question that the phenomenologists are asking, is the tree really there? Levinas is like, you know, I don't actually care that much about that question. And I don't really want to reground all of philosophy in the notion that I have a perception of a thing with green leaves and a brown trunk. I don't want to do that. It's not very interesting to me. In fact, what I want to do, in part, I think, kind of deeply motivated by his experience in the war, is say, let's reground philosophy not on perception, but on our pers- on some sort of ethical notion. So some ethical notion is going to be at the core of everything we think about and do, and we can actually reduce this to something pretty simple. So, so I'm this little man here, and I encounter a person, and this person notably has a little face. And when I encounter their face, I get a sense impression of them with their, their face. I, I see them with my mind's eye. But that experience actually said something to me. And so when I encounter someone, another person with a face, they immediately respond back to me, or their, their face kind of speaks to me. And it says, thou shalt not kill me. It confers on me an ethical obligation. So. For Levinas, the central notion that he's gonna build all of philosophy up from the ground up, everything can be built on this notion that the face offers me some command, which is thou shalt not kill me. So we have some questions we might want to ask about this model. One is, does it matter Like, does it matter who this person is? Is there anything specific about like this little guy's face versus some other, you know? Imagine I put a second clip art with a different face. Um, and do I always hear the command? Does the command demand other things for me? This model opens up a lot of different questions. Anyone, anyone have a question, clarification, comment, frustration at this juncture? Good. Okay. So, Levinas' text can be pretty hard um, to read, and they are in a very kind of tricky language. So, part of, that's part of the reason I did the pictures first. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna power through, and we'll see we'll see hopefully some of these ideas that I've just described come through in the text. All right. So here is this is an excerpt from his his kind of main work, totality and infinity. All right. The face resists possession, resists my powers. So I, I forgot to say one other question that we should have have in mind is what is it about the face of another person that issues this command that says, don't kill me? Like, How does that actually work? What, what, what about the face makes this happen? This passage helps us, helps us understand that a little bit. All right. So the face resists possession, resists my powers. In its epiphany, we'll come back to that word, in its expression, the sensible, still graspable turns into total resistance to the grasp. Okay, let's like pause for a minute. The basic idea is right that anytime I try to grasp someone's face or someone's sense of who they are, let's say, I, I always fail. This mutation can occur only by the opening of a new dimension. For the resistance to the grasp is not produced as an insurmountable resistance, like the hardness of a rock against which the effort of the hand comes to naught. It's not that I keep trying to understand the person. I keep trying to understand them. I keep trying, and there's no movement. Instead, there is some movement, um, like the remoteness of a star star in the immensity of space, the expression The face introduces to the world does not defy the feebleness of my powers, but my ability for power. Whew. Okay, what is he saying there? So it's not that like I don't have that I'm weak, and if I were stronger, I could really understand this person's face, or I could grasp them, or even like bring them under my control. That doesn't really, that's not quite what we're saying here. Rather, it's that my ability to act with power over another person is called into question by the presence of that person. Now, I think we should be like a little bit like there's something very compelling about this, something that sounds sort of familiar. It's like as soon as I encounter another person, then I start to wonder whether I can really control them. But you might also be worried about this account because you might say, well, no, when I encounter another person, it doesn't lead me to think that I don't have The ability to exercise power over them. In fact, that happens all the time. All, all the time, people encounter other people and they exercise power over them. Sometimes for good and sometimes for ill, right? Okay, so I, it's worth seeing that he thinks that there's a kind of absoluteness about this that, that we might want to question. The face, still a thing among things, breaks through the form that nevertheless delimits it. In other words, it just it goes beyond just like the physical features of a face itself. This means concretely, the face speaks to me and thereby invites me to a relation incommensurate with a power exercised, be it enjoyment or knowledge. So whenever I encounter another person, that person sort of invites me into a relationship with them that exceeds my ability to control it. That I think. Unlike the previous statement, it's sort of easier to relate to, right? The idea that, like, when I'm in a relationship with another person, they they invite me into something that I don't have full agency over. I have some; I can affect the relationship in various ways, but they also have to do work, and they also affect the relationship. Okay, now we're gonna do what Levinas does, which is sort of amp everything up a million degrees because we thought we were having a story about like a human relationship, but now all of a sudden things have taken a dark, dark and frightening turn. Here we go. To kill is not to dominate, but to annihilate. I think meaning to, when you kill someone, you don't try to control them. You just get rid of them altogether. Murder exercises a power over that escaped power, i.e., once you kill the person, you're no longer exercising power over them. They're just gone. Um, for the face, expresses itself in the sensible but already impotency. Because the face rends the sensible, the face sort of breaks up. Like the sensible is a great word for just like things you can see with your eyes. Let's leave it at that. Right. The alternative and alternative and alterity are both words we're gonna think about a lot. They just mean how different something is from me. So for Levinas, the other is the most different anything could possibly be. So then anytime that I'm in this like little relation, with there's me and there's this person, this person is maximally different from me. That might be kind of strange initially, right? Because you might, so it's worth seeing that like a lot of kind of ethical visions are based on a commonality between human beings. There's a way in which for Levinas is the opposite. It's like the tremendous distance between human beings is actually what what leads us to, to hold our ethical views. Okay, I can wish to kill, only an existent absolutely independent i.e only something that really is totally separate from me if it were part of me I wouldn't wish to kill it or annihilate it at least he imagines whether this leaves out certain kinds of experiences we could we might we might say um, which exceeds my powers infinitely and therefore does not oppose them but paralyzes the very power of power the other is the sole being I can wish to kill So that's going to set up how we get the idea that what the the face of the other says to us is don't kill me," because already the other is the only being I could wish to kill and there's something about the other that exceeds my grounds that I want to kind of connect to but I can't quite get close enough. All right now now things get even more more complicated. The other who can sovereignly say no to me, i.e., the other can just say, oh, "I don't want this," right? Is exposed to the point of the sword or the revolver's bullet, and the whole unshakable firmness of his core itself. Don't worry about that part. Um, that intransigent, no he opposes its obliter is obliterated because the world or the bullet has touched the ventricles or oracles of his heart. So when I when my sort of sphere of power, let's say that's something close to the bullet or the sword, starts to impede on some other person, they can say, no, get away from me. And that already kind of calls into question our, our relationship. But he can oppose to me a struggle that is that is opposed to the force that strikes him, not a force of resistance, but the very unforeseeableness of his actions. So it might be that the person can respond, and right, if I try to like physically force someone to do something, they can push back. That's one kind of reaction. But what Levinas is actually talking about is something even that's like much kind of deeper and more in your kishkas, which is, wait, what? What is kind of, I don't know what, how someone's going to react. So even if I am exerting all of the power that I can muster, and it's actually more power than the other person might have. Nonetheless, I actually am in a position of weakness in a certain way because I don't know how that person's gonna react. Even if like their only options are to sort of fight back feebly and lose or not fight back at all, still I don't know what's gonna happen. So that kind of puts me at a a disadvantage. Okay. Um He thus opposes me not a greater force, not some superlative of power, but precisely the infinity of his transcendence. So for Levinas, there is something that in this unforeseeableness of how a person might respond if you were to try to use force against them, there's some appeal to like an infinite transcendent reality um, because I don't know what the other person will do. something that exceeds my grasp again. This infinity, stronger than murder, already resists us in his face. It is his face, it is the primordial expression. It is the first word, you shall not commit murder." So this should give you some sense of like how we ended up with this story, where as soon as you see another person, their face says to you, don't kill me. There's something about an interaction with another person that elicits this desire to get to know them and maybe even potentially to control them. But at the same time, there's they. I can't predict what they're going to do. And so there's something that always is going to exceed my goals. And they're going to say, don't kill me. Because if you kill them, that's the one thing that will stop this unpredictability. OK, so what do we need to take out of this in order to understand the ethical critique that we're going to look at? For Levinas, right, notice what doesn't show up. In this passage, any specific people is one. Any kind of identifying features that those that person might have, any specific needs that you as the other might be responding to, right? So it's not like oh well, when you encounter a person in need, you need to help them, right? Something that should be familiar to us from all kinds of Jewish Jewish sources as well as other places. You don't see any of that. What you see is just the most bare bones reality of what it needs to confront another person, which is they have this kind of facial feature, and they are not, I can't predict what they're going to do. That's basically all you need for Levinas to start that ethical program. So on the one hand, this is super appealing because it means you don't need all of these other features of a person in order to Say that you owe them an ethical debt to not kill them, and then eventually, for Levinas, you you owe them everything basically, to protect them, because it doesn't matter who the person is, and it doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter all the exigent circumstances. So, in a certain way, this is very appealing because it just it puts ethics always at the very center of the conversation, no matter what you do. Right, that thou shalt not kill me is the fundamental first. you know, first feature, first philosophy, first concept that we have, the most important thing. On the other hand, you might start to worry, wait a minute, but like what about different kinds of people with different kinds of faces, different kinds of needs, and what if actually like thou shalt not kill me is not sufficient, we need all kinds of other ways to structure our relationships. All of this is kind of comes out of Nas's account, but isn't really fully answered. At least for the moment, let's say that. And then by the end of the class, if you still if you still think that, we'll we'll give you some sources to kind of complicate that picture. But for the moment, right, we don't see this is all very like super abstract philosophical language. We don't see much of the stuff of daily life. Enter Moriva Rebbe or Benjamin. Um, you know, a, a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful contemporary scholar who actually learned in the Drisha scholar circle back in the day when that was that was a thing that happened, and um, and she has a wonderful book called *The Obligated Self: Maternal Subjectivity and Jewish Thought*, which you should all go out and read all of because it's truly wonderful. Um, but in it, she gives a different account of what it means to be ethically obligated to another person, and that account is grounded for her in her experience of caring for her young children. Um, and she, she is very much schooled in the philosophical tradition of Levinas and, and Rosenzweig and other, other people sort of in that, that uh, 20th century Jewish philosophical crew, but she's worried about what they have to say. And so I wanna, I wanna read what, sh- what her worry is and then spend some time thinking about whether we think that worry is, is convincing or important and in what ways. Okay, so here here is Benjamin explaining what she thinks Levinas is doing, which is helpful for us already in case we want some further clarity on that, and then explaining what she thinks the problem is. Okay. The face of the other, Levinas writes, imposes itself precisely by appealing to me with its destitution and nudity, its hunger, without my being able to be deaf to the appeal. Right there, when I see the other, they already make the claim on me. There's nothing I can do to to run the other way. The other solicits me, yet also stands above me. So, we didn't really talk about this specifically, but Levinas, remember, I said there's this sense that the other is maximally different from us. He actually kind of builds on some theological language to say that that means the other is actually like above me in some, some fundamental way as it were, with an extreme and irreducible moral authority, what Levinas calls infinity. Okay, So far, so familiar. This infinity, stronger than murder, we just had this sentence, already resists us in in his face is his face is the primordial expression, the first word, you shall not commit murder. Okay, this primordial command, as Levinas suggests, issues from the face of the other who will always remain utterly other to me. So right, the other is maximally different. The other issues this command. Notice the command language and even the kind of biblical sounding of "thou shalt not kill." Levinas wants you to hear that, like it's not an accent. All right, the command to not not to murder is a command not to obliterate the ethical demand that the other makes by his presence. So far, so good. Sounds familiar. Now she's gonna say, "Wait a minute." This doesn't match, actually, one of the core experiences of how she imagined, how she has sort of like learned to think about ethics, but also how like human beings interact with one another on an ethical play, which is the experience of a parent caring for a child. Okay. Yeah, if the alterity, remember I I said alterity is a word we're going to come back to, and it's a word that just means like the difference between two people. Okay the alterity of my child cannot be he- be apprehended without the backdrop of the familiar and vice versa so if i want to understand and she does a good job of talking talking about this in more detail in the book if i want to understand my child one of the things that that parents often do is actually recognize their similarities to the child, whether they be physical similarities, similarities in mannerisms, patterns of speech, behavior. And the the parent will actually kind of dramatize that for the kid. And then the kid will sort of parrot it back. And there's a kind of dynamic that goes on. And so she says, well, if I want to understand the ethical demands on me made made on me by my child, one of the things I actually have to do is recognize the ways in which there's they're literally familiar, right? They're part of my family, but they're also, they're similar to me. They, they appear similar, all kinds of ways. and vice versa. Okay, so right, they kid's similar to me, I'm similar to the kid. So two white me say that the command my child issues and the responsibility I have toward her can only be comprehended through intimacy, right? So it can't be that the real ethical claim that's like at the core here is some diff claim about the distance between me and the other, because actually for a child, like the child demands that I like transit, like violate that distance between me and the kid all the time, both in a f- just direct physical way, right? Like I have to kind of invade the kid's space all the time and or take care of them, all of those kinds of things. Um, but also just, that there's a kind of deep, like intimate, physical, and emotional connection between parent and child that is central to the ethical relation. So don't go and tell me that this whole thing is about distance between me and the other and separation and height and all this stuff. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't match up with what it actually means to be in an intimate relation with a kid. Now, one thing we might want to do as we read this is to think about how that relates to other kinds of like very close and intimate relationships we might have that aren't necessarily parent-child ones. right? So friend, even very close friends, other kinds of family relationships, siblings, etc. cetera. All right. My child's first word in Levinas's existential ethical sense may indeed be, thou shalt not commit murder. Yet this single existential commandment emerges as a multiple times daily command, in quotes, to locate difference, that mysterious thing that's always behind my grasp, within the familiar. So I have to find something, like there's something familiar about my kid. There's something familiar about the way they live. They live in my, you know, in, in, a, in a kid's, like in a parent's family. But when the child is making an ethical demand on me, that ethical demand is always situated in our kind of closeness. And there may be difference within that closeness, but it's sort of closeness is kind of fundamental. Children's needs and abilities can be plotted in the abstract, but the distinctive needs of any given child determines the command she issues. This is actually in a certain way the core of the critique and the most powerful part of it, this sentence. And it's sort of lost in this framing, but we'll see in in the the text we're going to look at in a few minutes, it's even more powerful. The idea is you're. The kid can't issue a general command that's like, don't murder, because in fact, the child's command is like feed me right now. Not like don't commit murder is a kind of general principle. If there's actually some, there's an urgency and an intimacy to like what they need. It's, it's a very kind of embodied, immediate set of things that needs to be done Okay, the specific command can only be heard in the immediacy of one particular child at a particular moment. Right? So, the kid can demand that they need one thing now and another thing, you know, an hour down the line that may be completely opposite or something. So, there's a specificity that's specific to the time and specific to the child that Benjamin thinks is missing in Levinas's story of obligation, but needs to be totally built into how we think about ethics from the start. Okay. It's worth actually, before we go on, it's worth thinking a little bit about kind of what are the advantages and disadvantages here. So on the one hand, right, we might say, oh, this is very appealing because it lets us take account of people's very specific needs that might differ over time and place. And it's more connected to our our particular universe. But on the other hand, interpreting what these particular needs are for particular people gets messy right? As, as any of you can attest for a child, like figuring out like what is actually best for the kid is not always a simple question. But in fact, figuring out what's best for adults is not simple either. And so if you take this ethical view really seriously, it's going to be very tricky to figure out exactly what is kind of what is really demanded of you ethically. And that maybe open to abuse or maybe open to kind of miss, even not abuse, just misperception, right? You mis, might misunderstand um, or be led by your own desires or something to, to, um, to misconstrue what somebody needs ethically. And then you might be better off with just like the core command, this is the rule, do not murder, not there's this command now and this command later. Okay, in other worlds, words, a child does not merely issue a single abstract existential command, contra Levinas' portrayal of the paradigmatic encounter, but issues embodied and variable commands that are just as existentially significant as do not murder. There's a lot writing on just as existentially significant, right? It's not just, oh, well, like, feed me right now is just something we gotta deal with because otherwise things are gonna be messy. It's actually like, as deeply important for our philosophy and for our sense of what, what, what is ethical to do, the kid saying, I need this right now, or the kid just yelling and trying to convince you that that's what they need, et cetera, is in fact as important. It's worth recognizing the kind of radical status, like nature of that claim, especially if you put it in its theological context. right? So just like to put it in a kind of more, uh, a more Jewish key, what she's saying here is that a child saying, I'm you know, saying, whether verbally or otherwise, I need to be fed right now, or I need to take a nap, or I need you to play with me, has the same theological status of thou shalt not murder, i.e. the Deep brought. Okay, that should like blow your mind a little. I think it's, it's, it's worth seeing that. Like she's saying a three-year-old being like, this is what I need right now. Or at least your sense of what the three-year-old needs, maybe, has the same deep status and importance as "thou shalt not kill." Wild. Okay, it's a little wild. It's a little wild. Discernment and error. Remember, I said we should be worried about like whether whether we're going to get this right. Discernment and error are constant companions in the effort to enact my responsibility to this particular other. Right. I have to learn to guess what a given child wants and some of the time I'm going to get it wrong. She's willing to just take that on board, right? She's going to say, "In hakinami, of course I'm going to have trouble figuring this out." That's just what it is. Responding to the command requires deliberative work, right? We have to really think about it and not merely the adoption of a posture of service. So it's not just like if I am sort of I'm like going to do whatever you want, I'm going to like be kind of be there for you, that's not sufficient. I actually really need to think hard about what is best for you. This I think is both like really important for her view to make any sense. And maybe the aspect that translates least well out of the parent-child context and into other kind of intimate relationships. Because there's an assumption here that like one party is doing the deliberative work about the other one. So you might say, if you wanna translate that into a relationship between adults, you need to include that the deliberative work is between two, between both people in the relationship. Okay, responsibility need not derive only from radical alterity, right? From being maximally different from someone else, but can emerge as the inevitable result of my participation and thus my implication in the embedded experience of the world my child and of the world of my child and of the world we share together as soon as I'm in the world of my child, I'm sort of caught up in this whole complex of things. And there's sort of nothing actually that, 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 that's enough to bring me into this ethical orbit and to make the ethical demands that that child makes on me have the same like existential status as, you know, to put it in the strongest possible terms, like the voice of God on Sinai, right? That's like, Okay, I wanna pause there um, for questions, comments, confusions, frustrations, deep excitement. Avigail, I see you have a hand. I do, hi. Right.
2: Um, Hello. Okay, I knew in my head I had a question and then I had a comment and now I only remember the comment, which I know is like a little rude. Um, yeah, it's all good. So it seems like, Mara Benjamin actually has two pieces, right? There's the intimacy and there's the specificity and she sort of elides those, but it seems like those are actually really importantly different. Like like there are cases in which like someone's unique needs can be really clear without knowing them intimately. And there can be cases where you can know someone intimately and also like their needs are very generalized and like could be the same as for all people, I think. And I'm not sure what to make of that.
1: Yes. Right, I think that's absolutely right. And I also think, and this is sort of, you're anticipating a certain way where we're gonna go next week. I am, so there's two claims being made here, at least in this, not in this passage, but in general. And and we'll see some evidence of this later, but um, there's a claim that there's something where Levinas goes wrong because he's not concrete enough, which I think is sort of the specificity claim. And then there's the intimacy claim. And there's an assumption that those two are basically one, one of the same, of the same thing. And I actually think that the abstraction thing is a red herring, and that what we should be talking about from my perspective, such as it is, is that um, what we really should be talking about is not like, oh, Levinas' view is too abstract. But Levinas' view allied certain kinds of experiences that we want to take seriously, including ones that kind of become evident through certain kinds of intimate relationships that have a particular kind of particularity or embodiedness or whatever. but. There's no reason that like, first of all, my intimate, in my intimate relationships, it's really obvious to me what a person needs at a given moment. That's just not, it's really not the case of like basically any close relationship that I have um, or even of a baby, right? Um, and also, as you say, in fact, like you can have a pretty distant relationship and know that what a person needs is pretty straightforward, right? You see someone, um, you see someone like who needs food, who's like asking for food on the subway, it's pretty clear what they need and you don't actually need to be in like a deep intimate relationship to get that, it's pretty straightforward. And there's a way in which Levinas is then better at talking about those kinds of like really extreme situations because he's just like, okay, there's an answer here and you better, you better step up. This is a much more complicated picture where like, right? There's gonna be discernment and error and deliberative work, and that's not like, the deliberative work can be very important, but it's not necessarily gonna get you to like, rush into the, the scene of distress and like immediately take action. It's gonna require some kind of deliberative connection. So yeah, I think you're, you're right to pick up on, there's this assumption that intimacy and in particularity are connected. And what I wanna suggest by the end of the three sessions is that you can have something like the intimacy stuff um but without the specificity and particularity and you can have something like the particularity without having the embodiedness that she wants to talk about so that's where we're that's like preview of where we're going but yeah thank you so much for that um anyone else questions comments concerns confusions okay so if you thought that making a kid's like demand for care or demand for their needs to be fulfilled, like have the same apparent ethical, philosophical, existential status as the Saratendip wrote, uh, the Ten Commandments is totally crazy. It's going to get even more crazy. So get excited. All right. Benjamin wants to do something really interesting with this picture of obligation. So it's not only that, let's talk about what my ethical obligations are to this child. She wants to use that experience and sense of obligation to then think about our relationship to God. And she's going to build on, right, as I said, there's a certain like theological Feel in some of what Levinas is saying because there's this absolute other that's maximally different from me and it can't be really similar to me at all. It should sound like the Rambam, right? It should sound and or very, it sounds very familiar to a certain kind of Jewish theological view. Um, the God is above me. God says, Thou shalt not kill. Like there's all kinds of theological stuff going on there. And in a way, Levinas is part of a big larger tradition of people trying to make sense of what does it mean kind of in the modern period for God to obligate us to do things, whether those be ethical things or like uh, ritual things, or some netherworld combination. In fact, I don't think that those two are as separable as people make them out to be, but that's a that's a subject for after the shear is over. Okay, so she's gonna say, look. You don't have to go to like all this stuff about first philosophy and all of these kind of crazy things to understand what obligation is and why it could make sense in modernity. In fact, there's obligation all around you. There is obligation that's built in to your very existence, as in like parent-child relationships. So you don't need to go to like some crazy philosophical view to like come up with a philosoph- philosophy of halakha that lets you make sense of like how can God obligate me to do things. In fact. We've already got that and it's the obligation that a parent has to a child. So here we go. Maternal experience of caregiving as love illuminates God's love for Israel and Israel's response in the performance of mitzvot. Maternity offers in this way a corrective in a culture that defines love as strictly an involuntary emotion as irrational and therefore radically uncontrollable. While Jewish sources Recognize that love includes this mysterious, uncontrollable, and unwilled dimension. They also suggest that rigorous, active practice can cultivate love. Right? So there's like, you can think of Shema as like the kind of core way of of talking about this that one of the ways we perform our love for God is by participating in a very sort of specific, particularized set of actions. And that in a certain way is not that dissimilar from the kinds of deep, like uh, intimate, like uh, particularized care that she's imagining that you might have for, for a child. Okay. so parental, oh, no, thank you, Google Docs. Okay, parental caregiving manifests this performative aspect of love. Most of the time, affect state is not the key factor that drives parents to attend to their children. Right. So one way to like translate this out of philosophy is is most of the time, the reason that a parent takes care of their kid is not because they have some, this like lovely warm and fuzzy feeling that they have all the time. And they're like, oh yes, now I feel this warm and fuzzy feeling. Therefore I must take care of the child. Most people don't actually feel that way. No. Okay. Um, Primal, visceral love of one's child, as powerful as it can be, does not always, or perhaps even usually, tell a parent what to do vis-a-vis one's child any more than one's primal frustration or rage. Some of the time, you are really frustrated. That also doesn't tell you what to do. You need to know. Okay, we're going to skip Sarah Ruddick for the moment. Proper human action in daily life cannot rest or fall on enthusiasm, zeal, or intensity of feeling. Certainly, one cannot rely on these feelings to keep a dependent creature alive. Parents execute their daily acts of diaper changing, cleaning, and feeding their young children as an expression of their love. But child rearing demands that acts of service continue even when parents don't want to attend to their children or when they don't feel affectionate towards them. Right? You still got to change the diaper even when you're like, you know, what? I really could take take or leave this whole situation at the moment. Right? So there's something about the feeling. These like particularized experiences of caring for another person that are analogous to the way that we perform our love for god okay that in a certain way is not like a super radical theological view but she's gonna like twist it over and it's gonna become a little bit crazier likewise the people of israel are to perform mitzvot out of And as the expression of their love of God. Great. So far, so good. I don't want to put on fill-in this morning, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because like in some broad picture, I have a love for God. But like right now, I'm not so, so feeling. All right, fine. The validity of the performance does not depend on whether an individual is gripped moment to moment by a sense of gratitude or love of God. Instead, performance becomes a means by which action can be regulated. So far, so good. So that's one way in which there's a kind of the sense of obligation is about love, but it's about love kind of reconstrued or reimagined. Now, here's where it gets crazy. To be an obligated self, right? To be the kind of person who feels these obligations that are performed through love. They're an expression of love, even if they're not necessarily like themselves motivated by a feeling of love internally. Right? To be an obligated self was to be subject to the law of another, the law of the baby. She's describing, like, when her, um, her daughters are very, very young. The law could not be fulfilled in abstract, right? This is the, the, the worry about abstraction, but only in active, embodied material actions. Some abstract obligation to not kill the other is not, in fact, going to change any diapers. Soothing, feeding, cleaning, comforting, distracting, smiling, and wiping. It became the law of the crying toddler who sought, not just, sought out not just any, but specifically our or my comfort, the law of seeking out our or my face or approval or interest. The law of the baby was not just the law of any baby, but the law of this baby. This baby had to be woken up throughout the night to eat because she was born small. This baby responded with great interest to one particular plush toy. This baby's imperative was to hold her at a certain angle so she would fall asleep for a nap. The next day, the next week, this baby no longer responded to this position or that toy. So what it is to be obligated to is to be subject to the law of another being. but that And that being makes all kinds of arbitrary demands. And the demands change, and they're kind of strange, and they don't always make sense, but subject to all kinds of other arbitrary demands. So it's worth spelling out what this view actually entails here. She is saying that the one good analog, maybe even the best analog, though she doesn't always go that far in the book, for thinking about what it means to be obligated to God is the obligation that you have to a baby. So in this story, God is the baby. Wild, right? Before I was like, the the toddler is giving you a Sarah said you broke. That was crazy. Now we're like really saying it out God's the baby here. God is um, demanding, unpredictable, and vulnerable. Right? God needs your care. Otherwise, God won't survive, just as the child won't survive. And those acts of care are specific, they respond to very particularized realities. So, it's worth just like sitting with that for a moment i think it's both um it inverts all kinds of metaphors of thinking about god as a father figure as opposed to thinking of god as a as a child um but it also brings into the fore in a way that like the, the kind of more philosophical care that we saw last week do right they they wanted to make experiences have carried the center of ethics. In a certain way, what Benjamin has done is say, not only am I going to make it the center of ethics, but I'm going to make it the center of theology and religious thought also. So I'm going to make my whole conception of what it means to be obligated to meet the vote. I'm going to build it around what does it mean to be subject to the law of the baby. I'd like to just pause there for a moment and see how people react to that view. It seemed like wonderful, plausible, you hate it beautiful. None of the above.
2: Anyone? Eguile? I mean, I think that like, right, so what I think this is maybe one of the obvious critiques of Mara Benjamin's work. But I think this is actually very hard to extend beyond babies. Like some of what she says is like, like, like some of her book, I'm like, great, I can see how that would map to like, a friendship, or my relationship as a child to my parent or like any number of relationships. And this is like, as someone who has not had responsibility for a baby that is like my baby ever, like I don't get it. Like I can't mm-hmm. like, like I'm like, right. Like, like I can think about like babysitting like a six month old for two hours. And that does not get at like what she's describing. And this feels yeah. actually like fundamentally like an experiential thing. That's like very difficult to like. Yeah. Like- take out of this framework.
1: Right, so I mean, on the one hand, I want to say like, yes, that's basically right. She, there's something about this experience that is kind of particular and can't be transferred. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a, a philosopher named Laurie Paul, who um, is, wrote a, an amazing paper called What You Can't Expect When You're Expecting. And she's a sort of hardcore epistemologist and her question is, well, In fact, all of your preferences are kind of realigned when you become a parent. So it's impossible for you to decide what it would be like to actually be a parent because all of your preferences will change in a way that you can't expect. So you don't know what it will be like. So there is a way in which like deep down, yes, Abigail, you're 100% right. There, you can't access that right now because it's a totally different reality. On the other hand, I don't want to go there that strongly because I think she Benjamin sort of sets herself up for for that as potentially a problem because if you really believe the kind of Laurie Paul story about child rearing and you believe that child this baby picture only really works if it's really a baby that's yours, quote unquote, let's let's like at least remember to flag the kind of yours language as potentially problematic. Um, it, it seems, I, I don't know, like, yeah, then, then there's a way in which her picture of mitzvot is not accessible to like a large swath of the population. Um, on the other hand, I don't know. I think that many people with whom I am in close relationships have very bizarre and arbitrary preferences. And as I get to know them better, and become in deeper relationship with them. I am first of all, I am in the position more to respond to those arbitrary preferences and to get to know them. And so I know that like you know various features of my my close my close friends, romantic partners, parents, whatever have like certain things that are really like bizarre that they're they like you know are, are kind of core for them. Um, that yeah, it's not the law of the baby. Um, but it's the law of, you know, so-and-so, which is the, like, they, you know, I don't know, they refuse to eat this kind of ice cream or whatever. They like, they like things done a certain way. Um, the question though, is that if you, ta- if you say, okay, well, this can be translated sort of appropriately because of all these arbitrary desires to other people, right? To, to grown-ups, Then the shock of the theological position is like, if you've almost taken the legs out of the theological position, not... Totally, right? But some of the shock value is gone because all of a sudden now what you're saying is ethical obligation to another to other people is similar to obligation to God, which is an old, old story, right? It's like in a certain way, it's like straight out of Dvargham, out of Deuteronomy. Like it's not a new picture. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's great, right? Like maybe that's like, oh yeah, now this is just part of the whole tradition. Um, but there's a way in which it it, it does diffuse some of the the kind of radicalness of the theological picture. Um, I saw something in the chat, but I have not yet read it. Um, Oh, okay, great. Um, Avigail, I wonder if there's a vulnerability piece. Yeah, I mean there is a question about like what is the degree of vulnerability that's being described here? At minimum, right, I think This gets you to a theological picture where God is potentially vulnerable. Again, there's like good sources in rabbinic tradition to think that that's like not a crazy view to have. So it it gives you something minimum. Okay. I promised you a Levinasian uh, coda or response, um, which I want to give you now. So Levinas gives these kind of readings of Sugyot that are. I would say often distant from the sugya themselves. Um, I am in fact, not going to give you the the sugya in question, Um, but it's one in which they're counting up the different covenants between God and Israel and the rabbis find ways to enumerate more and more and more and more and more covenants. Okay, but what's, what's important here is that he's gonna say, in fact, The law is super particular and it's super individualized and it actually includes all kinds of very specific responsibilities, not just this very broad, like, don't kill story. It's something super, super particular. Okay. Can the adherence to the law as a whole, to its general tenor, right? To sort of some, I think what he means here is like, whatever pops into your head is jewish ethics like some broad sense of like being a good person don't get too worked up about it right general mitzvot kind of capital m to be distinguished from the yes which is said to the particular laws that it spells out can you distinguish between these two things naturally there has to be a general commitment you have to be kind of generally in on the project the spirit in which a piece of legislation is made has to be understood and here we must deepen this understanding of the spirit of the law. Philosophy is not forbidden here. The participation of the faculty of reason is not unwelcome, right? We we can reason generally about what's the what's the kind of broad picture of the law. For there to be <laughs> true inner adherence, this process of generalization is indispensable. So if we really want to know what's at stake in this like whole big project of like the mitzvot, we need to think very broadly and philosophically about what they are. But why is it necessary to distinguish between this knowledge of the general spirit, of thinking about like, what is this project of obligation? What is this project of vote, And the knowledge of particular forms of its expression? Because we cannot understand the spirit of any legislation without acknowledging the laws it contains. It can't just be that this is a kind of broad notion of like obligation to God or obligation to other people, kind of full stop without much specificity. We need the specificity. We need the specificity that Torah gives us, and I'm going to fill this in, although it's not so obviously there in Levinas. We need the specificity that's filled in by others' particular needs. Okay. There, there, these are two distinct procedures. These are two different ways of thinking. And the distinction is justified from several points of view. There is a constant struggle within us, between our two adherences, between adhering to the general project of mitzvot and like this mitzvah before us right now, to the spirit and what is, and to what is known as the letter. Both are equally indispensable, which is why two separate acts are discerned in the acceptance of Torah. So he's going to read not a sev nishma, right? We will, we will do and we will hear the two kind of phrases of acceptance that are said at Sinai. He's going to read those as sort of relating to this general sense of the law and their particulars. So, at least in his more like kind of Jewish key moments, Levinas does have a story about particularity that doesn't show up in Benjamin super obviously, but it's there. And it's there in, in just as it is for Benjamin, the very specific ritual acts that the, the Torah demands of us. Okay. There is a further reason why the particular should be seen as seen within the law, kind of capital L, as a principle which is independent of the universality of, of every particular that every particular law reflects. It is precisely the concrete and particular aspect of the law and the circumstances of its application which give rise to the Talmudic dialectic. oral law is a system of casuistry. So casuistry is just laws, legal discussions about particular cases. So for him there's something special and important about the way that the Gemara obsesses over particular cases. So it's not like, don't go telling me that like the, the kind of conventional picture is one in which particularity is not highlighted. In fact, at least for Levinas, there's particularity all around this every time the Gemara brings up some insane crazy case about like a very particular person who's very particular needs need to be accommodated by the law in a very specific way. Right, it is concerned with the passage from the general principle embodied body the law to its possible execution and its concrete effects. If this passage were simply deducible, if we could just figure it out just by looking at the law, the law in its particular form would not have demanded a separate adherence, we wouldn't need to think about this in two different ways. But the fact is that the general principles and generous principles can be inverted in the course of their application. So this is a subtle argument, and it's a little confusing. Um, It's not even, I think, maybe not like super clear in the way he's written it. But what he's going to say is we need the the particular stuff in the Talmud in order to make sense of all of this. Um, And actually, we need it, especially because if we just think in the general rule way, or we just think in the specific way, we, we run the risk that they're kind of going to reverse places. We're going to get confused about what are the particular needs of a specific group or a specific person and what is kind of the broad picture. And we're going to get confused between the broad picture and what somebody, what some specific thing really needs. Okay, all generous thought, and I don't think he means generous as in sort of kind or giving, he means generous as in generates something. So something that's kind of big picture, broad, that produces something, is threatened by its own Stalinism. Whew, okay. If we think in big philosophical terms, we're liable to create things that are so broad that they take over. This is exactly the critique that the characterists are worried about. Right? They're worried that thought is going to take over the world. These like broad abstract concepts are going to take over our very particular lives. The great strength of the Talmud's casuistry is that the specific discipline which studies the particular case in order to identify the precise moment within it when the general principle is at risk of turning into its opposite, right? the risk in which some good religious impulse um, to kind of train somebody to to serve God in a particular way, turns into a destructive impulse. We can think of cases like that. Um, It's at risk of turning it into its opposite. It surveys the general from the standpoint of the particular. This preserves us from ideology, from sort of getting too entrenched in our general views. Ideology arises out of the generosity and the clarity of principle qualities which do not take into account the betrayal which lies in wait for this general principle at the moment of its application so you have some general principle and along comes some particular thing and the particular doesn't fit the principle so all of a sudden now the principle is broken so i think what we see in levinas in this more kind of obviously jewish key is his commitment to the idea that the specific kind of case based language of the talmud is somehow able to avoid the problems of abstraction that are similar to the kinds of problems that Benjamin brings up. Now, does that mean that, like, oh, actually, Benjamin was wrong and the Talmud is like a great characteristic and we can all go home and be like, everything is fine? Um, I don't think that's quite right. Instead, I want to suggest to you that there's something in the mode of thinking of the talmud that can be helpful and that it thinks of these crazy cases and brings them into the conversation but that there is at the same time we might worry about what kinds of cases actually make it into the talmud or right can really make it in the door of the gemara and it might be that Benjamin's intervention is really helpful because it kind of expands the range of kinds of cases that we're actually interested in thinking about as resources for ethical reflection. Not that the Talmud doesn't talk about child rearing, it does all the time, um, but maybe it talks about it in a different way. um, And that she kind of helps us see that that there's this wider range of of particular experiences that we might might wanna bring into the picture. So with that, um, I hope you've, you've learned a little bit about some different ways of thinking about uh, what, what obligation might mean or what it might do and what it might take to bring in some notion of the particular um, into our, the way we think about both halacha and Chiyuv and also our ethical commitments to other people. Thank you and
0: have a great night. Um, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Sarah. Such a wonderful second class in this series. Looking forward to next one, uh, next uh, Sunday evening. And thank you to everyone who joined us today here on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. Uh, We continue our full program tomorrow evening at 8 p.m. with the second of a three-part series with Rabbi Shlomo Zuckier on virtual reality and genuine humanity, Can They Coexist?, in addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.trisha.org classes, or you can watch live at www.trisha.org slash live. Thank you again, Sarah, for this opportunity to learn with you uh, this evening. And again, to everyone who attended, uh, we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming classes at Trisha. Thank have you. Have a wonderful night, everyone.
1: Thank
0: you. Thank you, Sarah. Good night.
1: Good night.